have the distinct pleasure of opening your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1 as we continue this morning. Last week, Rick, well, let me actually back up and say this. We're studying through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah presently, and last week, Rick opened with uh, a, using Ezra, sorry, using Nehemiah 1 as a bit of an overview introduction. And so what I want to do is just kind of linger another week in chapter 1 and really focus on what is regarded as, as um, just an exemplary prayer, one that is, is worth digging into. And um, if, if I could go so far as to say emulating in some ways, and that's what I want to look at this morning is just take Nehemiah's heart and, and, and a bit of the structure and even some of the characteristic that we see in his prayer, in, particularly in verses 5 through 11, and just extract what is you know, so helpful and, and what is faith-filling for us as we continue to endeavor to mature in our habits of holiness, particularly in prayer. How many of you, just out of curiosity, feel as though, by a show of hands, that you could grow in your habit of prayer? That's most of us. If you didn't put your hand up, that's wonderful. And I, and I would love to glean from you some of the wisdom that you have obtained over the years. Um, prayer is something that is, that is constantly, it's a, it's a muscle that we're constantly working. And the more we work it, the stronger it becomes. The stronger it becomes, the more effective it is as a means of, of grace and faith in our life. So I've entitled this morning's teaching, The Crucible of Prayer. And you guys know what a crucible is. It's a, it's a vessel that's used in the process of refinement, but particularly to mold that which is being refined and purified. And so I've entitled this morning's teaching, The Crucible of Prayer. And as I said a, a moment ago, in, in terms of its instruction, Nehemiah is a very helpful and can be a very helpful, this portion of Nehemiah 1, for us in growing in prayer. It's akin to the Lord's Prayer in the Gospels, where they come to Jesus and they say, teach us how to pray. And Jesus says, pray like this. And we all know the Lord's Prayer, and he takes them through. Also, it's, it would be akin to how we have learned just through perseverance that we see in Daniel's life, in the book of Daniel, and his habits of prayer. Nehemiah 1 is, sits in that place as well. However, I think it's important for us also to remember, more than just wanting to strengthen and encourage us this morning in the habit of prayer, I want to remind us of the overarching theme, because what I really want to land in today is the joy in prayer and the comfort which is the providence of God. And that theme has been woven through throughout the book of Ezra as we have studied this far and we're going to find that it also continues on. Remember, Ezra and Nehemiah historically were one book. And it wasn't until later that they were separated and considered as two, which is why we're teaching through all 20 some odd chapters of both combined. But we see that through Ezra and also through Nehemiah, this theme of the providence of God flows and is 
threaded through. And the providence of God is this, that God acts sovereignly out of love, influencing the affairs and the circumstances of men and women and all of his creation to bring about his perfect plan. That God acts and influences circumstances and individuals out of love and care to bring about his plan and his will upon the earth. That is what providence is. And we have seen it, as I've said thus far, we have seen it. Isn't she cute? She is just the cutest. If she would come and stand up here while I taught, that would be even better. I would love it. So this is, thank you so much, it's very cold in here. So if we can also maybe have a look at that. So this is the, this is the theme. God works through the actions and the free will, the actions and the free will of men and women by sovereign influence that is apart from any external effect. That is what sovereign influence is to accomplish his perfect plan within redemption. This is what providence is. The, the absolutely brilliant and wonderful and insightful Matthew Henry once wrote this, events are not determined by the wheel of fortune, which is blind, but by the wheels of providence, which are full of eyes. There is nothing, church, there is nothing within the whole history of creation, including that which has not even yet taken place, that is outside the view and beyond the influence of God. There is nothing. Do you believe that? That's a very important truth as a Christian. There is nothing outside the influence of God. There is nothing beyond his view. There is nothing that he is not using and influencing to bring about, including our own free will which we don't have time to break down the seemingly conundrum that that presents. But it's just to say that that is our comfort as a believer. But what's more amazing, which is our, te- our text will show us this morning, is that the same all-powerful, the same um, omniscient and completely self-sufficient God, the same God has purposed for us to actively participate in this process by a powerful means, and that is the mechanism of prayer. So on the one hand, it's God in everything, working through and in everything to bring about his perfect plan, but yet he has designed it as such that we participate with him through the mechanism of prayer. How mind-blowing is that? That somehow he allows us to have impact and effect in his sovereign plan without us mucking things up. And I'm going to bring some clarity as to why that is, I believe, here momentarily. But it's just to begin by saying that is rather mind-blowing, I think. In an almost continuation of thought from Matthew Henry's quote on Providence, the, the also wonderful and brilliant and highly well-spoken Charles Spurgeon says this on prayer. 
Prayer is one of the necessary wheels of the machine of providence. Prayer is one of the necessary wheels of the machine of providence. And so if we just kind of synthesize those two statements together, what we have is this, that events are influenced by the providence of God and providence is influenced by prayer. And this is what I want us to see this morning, that God uses prayer to form us and to participate in what he's doing in the world. That Church, prayer matters. Prayer is not just a a rote obligation that we beat ourselves up over because we don't do enough of. Prayer is a mechanism that God uses to form us and conform us into his image and into his will. And not only that, but he uses it to actually bring about his will and his purpose here on earth. Prayer matters. Prayer is significant. And so as we begin this morning, I want to look at Nehemiah. We're going to read here, Nehemiah chapter 1. And um, I'm going to begin in verse 3, if I may, and on. And we have it up here on the, uh, on the monitors if you're in need this morning. I'm reading from the ESV. And this is the the word of the Lord through Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king. Verse 3, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. And now I pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. I'm gonna continue in, verse, in chapter two. 
In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. What we have here in this portion of Nehemiah is the man Nehemiah. Now we're looking again at almost the third act, if you will. The first was Zerubbabel and the first waves of exiles that were returned from being captive in Baal, now by the king of Persia. And then some years later passed and their intended purpose was to rebuild the altar and to rebuild the temple of God, to return to the city of Jerusalem from which they were exiled, to restore and to rebuild the altar in the temple, this, the worship of the God, of their God, Yahweh. And then Ezra, we see in the middle of that book, takes up a similar cause with a similar emphasis and another return of those who would come with Ezra to restore the law to the people of God. And now here we have Nehemiah, and as Rick spoke of last week, we have this return once again, now almost 100 years since the first wave of Israelites returned to Jerusalem. And here's Nehemiah, and he has heard the news that the walls and the gates of the city are in disrepair and are broken down. And he's overcome with sadness because of what this means for the people of God. And his heart is moved to prayer, and this prayer is what I have just read unto you. And I've chosen to read this, uh, partially into chapter two as well because of the significance of what I'm going to point out here in a moment of how he engages in prayer, and then we see again in the moment that God moves on the heart of the king, it's prayer again that Nehemiah engages in and goes to. And so before I extract what I just believe are three really important, significant characteristics of prayer that Nehemiah exemplifies here. I want to just speak on the structure of the prayer for a moment. And I want to be careful that we're not too methodical, and I don't want to get too clinical, because what I'm not doing is I'm not presenting to you a, a formula of A, B, and C results in God doing D, E, and F. But there is something that I believe is really helpful that speaks to a maturity and a stability in heart and an understanding that we can glean that will help us to build a robust and a healthy prayer life. So I just want to look at the structure or what I'm calling the structure of Nehemiah's prayer. And before I speak of two things, I just want to say this. I have said before, and I want to say again here, that we have to avoid the tendency to place those whom we, we read about within Scripture on somehow an unattainable pedestal, whereby the things that they do and say are not for us somehow. 
And, and when we do this, we unknowingly, I think, or unintentionally, we, we, we say that the things that are to be learned and the things that they would exemplify are somehow inapplicable for our, unapplicable for our own lives. And so I just want to be careful because Nehemiah is just a man. He's just a man. He's an important man to the king, but it's important for us to first see that God uses ordinary men and women. And so the prayer that he engages in is an ordinary prayer. It's a mature prayer, an appointed prayer, but ordinary nonetheless. And so if we drill down here into verses 3 through 11, I think the first thing that we can see as it pertains to the structure is that while on the surface it seems as though this prayer is kind of a one and done prayer, we read it and it's like, oh, well, this is his prayer. And we're like, man, that's a good prayer. That's an eloquent prayer. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, I'd like to really pray with that type of pointedness. But actually, let me point out this. What I didn't read in the beginning is that it, it says at the beginning of Nehemiah that what now it happened in the month of Chislev, and then we see at the beginning of chapter two, he says, in the month of Nisan. On the Jewish calendar, you're talking about a four-month period, essentially. Chislev is November, December on the Jewish calendar, and Nisan is, May, is April to May. And so it's actually about a four-month period that, what, that, that this prayer of Nehemiah's has taken, has, has, been, has happened within. In other words, it wasn't just a one-time prayer. This was a prayer of a man who came to the Lord over and over and over and over and over and over and over for four months. That's the pointedness of this prayer. God was working in him over this course of time to refine his intent, to refine his desires, to refine and even maybe reform his words. I don't know exactly what transpired. But I want you to think of it this way. Consider something that you have prayed for for a long period of time. What is the difference between your prayer the first day and your prayer on the sixth month, second year, 10th year. This is what we're looking at here. The faith and the clarity of Nehemiah's words in chapter one were forged through the persistency of time. A man whose level of faith remained engaged and continued on. That's what we're reading here. And then secondly, I just want us to notice as well that the shape, and, the, and this was something that I, that I had, had read as I had studied this week, from uh, the, the, the writer Derek Thomas. And so I just want to say that this is not something of my own, but um, I just want to point out just how beautiful this is, that the shape of this prayer almost takes the same rhythm or the format of the Lord's Prayer to the disciples in the gospel. And he begins with this. He begins, Nehemiah begins with worship. And he says in verse five, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and his commandments. What does Jesus say? When you pray, pray like this. Our Father where? Who is in heaven. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Oh, Lord God, oh, great God of heaven, is Nehemiah's prayer. Brothers and sisters, let your worship begin with prayer. Sorry, let your prayer begin with worship. You know where I was going, right? (laughs) Everyone's going, yeah. (laughs) Sounds good. It sounds good. Let your prayer begin with worship. Position your heart to start with a high and a lofty view of who God is. Recognize and confess the supremacy and the authoritative state and the glorified and the exalted position that Jesus Christ holds today. Begin in worship as you pray. Worship reminds us very simply that he's God and we are not. That's an important reminder. We need to remember that. That's what worship does, though. It orients us. It reminds us that that he's powerful and that we're limited and that we are in need. It's amazing that I find in my own self, in my own habits of prayer, that I'll, I'll, I'll go into a time of prayer with like an agenda, if you will. Like, well, these are the things in this moment that's pressing on my heart. But I tell you, if you begin in worship, it's amazing how your agenda can change and shift. And suddenly you spend three, five, ten minutes just worshiping the Lord in prayer, not asking him for anything, not bringing petitions, but just recognizing, and, and, and it's almost like attesting to your own heart. You're preaching to yourself, this is who God is. And as you do that, suddenly this thing that was so pressing for you, it begins to, to be informed by the majesty and by the, the supremacy of who God is. That is a wonderful place to begin. Then Nehemiah moves on. He moves to repentance in verses six through seven. And he says, now I pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people. And then he says, even I and my fathers have sinned against you. And what does Jesus say? Forgive us our debts. When he says, teach us how to pray. Forgive us our debts if we have forgiven our debtors. Repentance in prayer, brothers and sisters, it doesn't have to be long. Maybe it needs to be the focus that moment of your prayer. But it doesn't have to necessarily be this long drawn out. Yet what's important is that there is a restoration to intimacy again that sin has torn. Sin separates us from God, but but repentance restores us and brings us back into intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ. So just beginning with this acknowledgement of your sinfulness is so significant and important in prayer. Just stop that. And then thirdly, Nehemiah moves to the basis for which he will soon make a request. And I just, I so love this. He says in verses eight through 10, remember the word that you've commanded, God, They are your servants and your people, he says, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. I love this. Nehemiah is reminding God of who he is and what he has promised. Do you think that God forgot? No, of course not. Of course he didn't. He's praying these things both as a a position of, of this is my right to bring my request before you. 
and as a reminder to his own heart, this is my right in faith to come to the Lord. Church, it's no different for us. Remember that it is our right to come to the Lord as his children in prayer, to bring a request to the one who hears all things, who knows all things and can do all things. It is our right. Don't be afraid to remind God of who he is and what he has promised. These are the things, these promises are the basis of our faith when we come to him. And we find that the more that we pray them, the more that we're familiar with the promises of God, the more we pray what is true and in line with God's promise, the more our faith is made alive and is stretched and is built up. Charles Spurgeon, I've got a couple of, a few quotes from him today. I tell you, he's probably just said the most on prayer outside of the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon, he, he, he said this concerning prayer, the best praying man is the man who is most believingly familiar with the promises of God. After all, prayer is nothing but taking God's promises to him and saying to him, do as thou hast said. And I love this statement. Prayer is the promise utilized. A prayer which is not based on a promise has no true foundation. Brothers and sisters, don't be afraid to remind God of what he has promised, both as an encouragement to our own hearts and a basis of faith by which we come to the Lord with our requests. And then lastly, once all these, all these things have been said, Nehemiah brings his petition to the Lord in verse 11, and he says, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and give success to your servants today. This is amazing. When it was all said and done, he didn't even really ask for something specific. He didn't ask for the Lord to, to send him, at least not in his words. It's almost as though we can read into this and we can say that, that it was perhaps that he wasn't clear to what God's will was. He just knew that the current circumstance was not the will of God. How many times have we experienced that where we go, gosh, I don't know what is actually intended in this moment, but I know that this isn't right. That's what Nehemiah was engaged in. And the good part is, church, that sometimes we're not clear as to what the answer is, but God is clear as to what the answer is. And what Nehemiah knew that was in faith, what he needed to do was pray. And so may I just say again, I hope that's helpful and I hope that didn't feel too clinical, but may we just be mindful of how we engage in prayer. It's very easy for us to begin in the sense of just going straight out with what we want and what we feel we need in the moment. But there's so much more that God has intended to do within prayer. Let yourselves go deeper. Let yourselves be stretched. Let your faith be alive so that as you engage in prayer and you have, a, you have a right understanding of what God's intention is for you. Even if the answer isn't clear, you know that, God, you're doing something in me. You're stretching me. You're forming me. You're purifying my desires. You're clarifying the intent of my heart, etc., etc. 
when we work through prayer in this way, beginning with worship, coming through repentance, bringing a, a confession of, of our right basis and, and approach to the Lord Jesus Christ, and moving then on into our request, something happens within us. Our, our motives are proven and our hearts, they are aligned with who God is as we hold him in the right view. And so I would just say this right before we move on here is, if you are young in the faith or still desiring to mature or to grow in prayer, be mindful of these four things, worship, repentance, basis, and request. And you don't have to do them in that order, but just pepper them in, holding on to the promises of God in prayer. And that's a great way to begin, and, to, and you'll see that the Lord will, your, your prayer life will change dramatically as you do. So those are some of the few helpful gleanings as to his prayer, and as I said, I want to just spend the rest of the time identifying what I believe are significant characteristics that we need to recognize and apply and, for our own selves in our lives today. There are habits of prayer that are both mature as well as deepening in and of themselves. And the first one is this, and I want us to see that for Nehemiah, prayer was primary. It was primary. Prayer wasn't the last resort. It was the first step in his offensive strategy. And he says this in verse four, as soon as I heard these words, as soon as I got the report that the walls were in disarray and the gates were burned, I sat down and wept, I mourned for days, and I continued fasting and prayer before the God of heaven. Church, I, 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 it, it pains me to say that unfortunately the reality is, is that for far too many of us, myself included at times, Prayer is the last thing that we do only once we've run out of other options. But listen, if prayer is our last effort, then God is our final thought. And his wisdom and the availability of his power is our last resource. What God has intended to be not just our first but almost our only real enabling to endure, to persevere, to see change, to, to engage in faith is oftentimes a final thought. May, may prayer be primary, church, in your life. God has given prayer to us to be a lifeline, to be an anchor, and to be a beacon of light to be all three of those things to us. Because prayer rescues, it stabilizes, and it gives guidance to our hearts. One, one individual that I read this week, he made this statement that prayer is not a last extremity, it is a first necessity, he said. And in Ephesians chapter six, Paul gives us his formula for effective prayer when he says, in verse 16, in all circumstances, Paul says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with, 
which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And he says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. In other words, every moment that we're able, make prayer your first step. Like Nehemiah did. May prayer be more than a one-time occurrence. May it be our first and our best. And as Paul would say too, which is so helpful here, within our prayer, have, may our prayer in company within it faith and understanding is this idea of the helmet of salvation, under, understanding, again, our right place, understanding our position, having been renewed in our minds to understand the will of God. May our prayer include that as well. The shield of faith. And what is the other? The third is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. May our prayer include truth from the Word of God as well. Is this all right? Is this encouraging? Yes. Okay. As important as, as prayer is, and as much as that is a, a significant and, and helpful thought, I think that God also wants us to see that his design for prayer is that it wouldn't just be our first reaction in the sense of one and done, but it's our primary effort through a sustained engagement, which is the next that we see with Nehemiah. That for Nehemiah, prayer is persistent and it's patient. Prayer is persistent and it's patient. He says this, let your ears be attentive in his prayer to the Lord and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you, what, for 10 minutes? At the beginning of my workday, and hopefully I'll remember it again later this week. No, no, Nehemiah says that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel. Church, this is a simple point, perhaps. And I made, I made light of it just that moment ago. But can I say this? Again, just a reminder of what Rick said last week. Nehemiah was an important man in the king's court. He was a busy man in the king's court. And yet what he shows here is, a, is a, a sustained persistency in faith over a long period of time, which he characterizes as being day and night. He was so consumed with the report that he heard, and he knew the importance of engaging in prayer that his faithful efforts were sustained day after day after day after night after night. Remember the parable of the persistent widow that Jesus tells. In Luke 18, it speaks of this woman who goes to the city judge time after time after time saying, give me justice against my adversary. And this judge who is not a God-fearing man basically says, I'm, I, I will grant her her request just so that she stops coming to me and bothering me over and over and over again. And then Jesus' words are, if, the, if these words of an unrighteous judge are such, how much more will your God give you justice? How much more? And Jesus also tells in the Gospels the parable of the neighbor who goes for bread at midnight because a guest has come. And the neighbor says, like, don't bother me. 
I'm, I'm in bed, my kids are in bed. I don't have what you need, but the neighbor keeps knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking and asking until it was what? Their impudence. Because of their impudence, the neighbor gets up and says, okay, fine, you can have some bread. The point is, church, continue, continue, continue. Jesus tells these things and he says, I tell you this parable so that you will pray continually and not lose heart. That was the point. This is what we are to understand. You guys, not only do we need to pray, but we need to learn how to pray. And by that I mean, man, to pray with faith that is engaged, to learn how to sustain these longer campaigns of faith, contending for what we know is true in the Lord. It's in our sustained pursuit that our faith is built up, that our motives are refined, and the precision of our prayer becomes like the tip of a spear. And this is what I believe was happening in Nehemiah. And as I said, think about something that you have prayed for. What's the difference between day one and six months later? The desperation in your heart. You pray for a sick, a sick loved one. You pray for a family member who's unbelieving, right? It's one thing to pray once. It's another thing to continue. And we come with a, a bit of like a righteous obstinance before the Lord when we don't see the prayer answered. Continue, continue, continue. And, and, and what's more is the patience that Nehemiah shows within it. His persistence doesn't seem to just include frustration at God for not answering his prayer. Four months, he just continues, and he waits, and he waits, and he doesn't become disillusioned. He doesn't become frustrated. He doesn't ask God, why is God not answering his prayer? He knows that prayer is what he's to engage in, and so he continues, and he continues, and he continues. Listen to this quote by Oswald Chambers. Whenever the insistence is on the point that God answers prayer, we are off the track. The meaning of prayer is that we get a hold of God, not a hold of the answer. How awesome is that statement? Is it just me? That was, that's amazing. How many, I read that, I went, oh man, that was really convicting to my own heart. How many times is it the answer that I'm looking for? When what God is wanting to do is he wants me to throw myself upon him, to allow myself to be cast upon the Lord Jesus Christ, like that, like that picture of, of to the cross we cling, the rock of ages. Have you ever seen that, that tattoo? It's super cool. It's this woman who's thrown herself at the base of the cross. That's what the Lord wants us to do. It isn't to get a hold of the answer, it's to get a hold of him. Because something is happening in the circumstance and it isn't always the answer that is the outcome that God wants to give to us. Sometimes it's what he wants to do in us that is the answer in that moment. And I have to believe, as much as we'll see that Nehemiah accomplishes a task and there is something that the Lord gives him to, I have to believe that there is, there is purpose in that four months that so quickly happens between chapter one and chapter two, where God was doing something in Nehemiah that was preparatory for what he was about to call him to do. I have to believe that. And I think the same thing goes for us, church. 
Is it the answer we're looking for or is it God that we're seeking? May it be about God. God works through the processes, not just the answering. He works through the process. His timing is different from ours, right? Plain and simple. Four months is a long time to us. It's a breath. Shannon and I were talking about it this week, reading in Ecclesiastes chapter one. Our life is but a breath. It's a vapor, Solomon says. I told Shannon, I started to cry. I was like, I'm gonna be 50 soon. My life is a vapor. I know, some of you guys are going, if yours is a vapor, what is, what is mine? It's a, it's a morning dew on a leaf. It's the residue of the dew on the leaf. Oh, I'm just, I don't know. It, I, I just was really taken aback this week by it. But anyway, that's not the point. The point is, is that God's timing is not our timing. And so what seems like a long time to us is but a moment to the Lord. And in the faithfulness, church, in the faithfulness, God works in your life. He's working something in you. He's forming something in you. Which leads us to the final characteristic of prayer, and then we're gonna come to the Lord's table this morning. And perhaps this is the most significant aspect of prayer, I think. The first two are our efforts of faithfulness. The third is God's part in the matter. And may I just say this too, may it be our joy and our comfort and our hope. And it's this, it's that prayer is executed in providence. Prayer is executed in providence. Understanding the Lord's providence in prayer is a matter of the utmost importance because without it, not only is our theology of prayer incomplete, when we, when we either don't understand, recognize, or have never heard or thought of the fact that God is at work in every circumstance according to his perfect plan, acting out of love on our behalf, wanting the most and the best for us. When that's removed from the equation of prayer, not only is our prayer understanding incomplete, But it actually, in a sense, it renders us impotent in that regard. Our prayers are lifeless. If there's no hope and there's no joy and there's no comfort that something beyond just our words that are being thrown out into the ether, then where's the joy and the comfort in that? If God is not working in all things, then why pray at all? I mean, you, you could follow that line of reason, at least, to that logical conclusion. Some might. Again, God has designed that through prayer, we would participate with him in his providential care of his creation. Why? Because God needs us? Does God need us? No, just do this. That was, that was a only, only one answer to that question. God does not need us. So if God doesn't need us, why has he invited us into the process? Take a guess. Loves us. Because he has something for us. Because it's for our benefit. He's doing something in us. He's forming something. And I tell you, and again, you've probably experienced this. Pray for something long enough, and the motive of that that prayer becomes very, very clear. Your prayers unanswered 
become honed and refined and much more pointed when it's sustained over a period of time. And so church, the joy in all of it, in every moment, in every challenge, and every trial is that God is working in these circumstances to bring something about within us. See, Nehemiah knew this. He, he, Nehemiah knew that it would be God according to his timing. Again, we could assume that even by the fact that he didn't ask for a very specific pointed thing. He just began to pray, and he began to pray for the will of God. And so Nehemiah knew that it was his timing. It was God's timing. Do we believe this? Do we, is this woven into the fabric of our faith and our understanding so that we too would employ such a great assurances in our prayer? See, Nehemiah didn't know when, but he knew what. Maybe not even exactly what, but he knew God. That's what Nehemiah knew. And he didn't necessarily even know how, but he knew that God would. See, these are important things, church. See, this, this is quite a difference in prayer, isn't it? When we consider this type of praying and this type of understanding and the way in which we engage God in prayer and circumstances in prayer, that's a big difference than just throwing something up on the old request wall, putting a sticky note on God's whiteboard, need me a new car. I listen, I have made ridiculous, if we'll, we'll call those ridiculous, I have made ridiculous prayers like that in my life. It's either because I'm lazy, I don't want to take the time, is what I'm saying, I've not had the faith, I haven't had the understanding perhaps, where I've just said, I've just thrown my request out there. And listen, I believe God uses all things, and even in this moment, he uses that for me to realize that's not how you pray. But there's quite a difference between this type, church, persevering, sustained prayer that is anchored in the providence of God that is a first response for his people. May we pursue these things.